seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. So we are in the fourth week of the season of Epiphany. And this season, like other seasons in the church calendar, have a specific purpose. Now, one of the reasons we use the things like the church calendar is not because we have to. The Christian religion is not made up of the observance of days, as God had set up in the administration of the Old Covenant, that there were certain seasons which must be used for particular modes of worship, but at the same time, even those who don't really recognize the validity of the rest of the church calendar, for the most part, will still celebrate Easter and Christmas. And one of the things that differentiates the time of Epiphany versus the time of maybe, let's say, Christmas or Advent or Lent, what have you, uh, this particular time is to remember that Jesus Christ did not only come and incarnate in a human being, that is, he himself came taking on the form of a human being, but that incarnation was not a secret thing. His death also was public. And so in the season of of Epiphany, we are looking at his public testimony to the people of Israel, and as we saw last week, the surrounding nations concerning his identity and those things which he was sent to teach. We see this at the end of John in John chapters 13 through 17 as Jesus is teaching his disciples and then moving to that place of prayer before his death, going to the garden, and he says to the Father, I have accomplished the task that you sent me to do. What's so interesting is for most of us, the way we've developed our theology of the atonement is that is the pinnacle of Jesus's mission. And yet before he goes to the cross, in truth, before his father, he says, I accomplished the task that you sent me to do. So what did, what did Christ attempt to do in his mission and what, what, what did he succeed in doing? He succeeded in revealing who the father was. He succeeded in bringing a demonstration of the kingdom of God, announcing at the very beginning of his public ministry, just as John the Baptist beforehand was going around and preaching the kingdom of God is at hand, that those, which, those things which are at hand are within reach. You don't describe something that will come at the end of the ages as something that is at hand, but rather those things which are breaking in. After Jesus announces at the beginning of his ministry, saying that 
the kingdom of God is at hand, he then goes on to say later in the Gospels, know for certain that if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, or in another place in Luke it says the finger of God, then know that the kingdom of God has come among you. So at first, at the beginning of his ministry, he says the kingdom of God is near, it's breaking in, it's almost here, it's at hand, it's within reach. And then he goes on to say, if you have seen deliverances, if you have seen me cast out devils by the Holy Spirit, then know that the kingdom has come into your midst. So he says it's at hand, and then he says it has come. So his purpose is not just to die on the cross. As we saw the last few weeks, John The Baptist, as he sees Jesus, he declares publicly at the River Jordan, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And the majority of the church is okay with Jesus being the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And believe you me, I am very happy that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But John the Baptist then goes on to say that the one who sent me to baptize said, the one on whom you see the Spirit of God descend and remain, it is he who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. The church is so comfortable with Jesus being an atoner, Jesus being someone who will make propitiation, someone who will unify us to the Father, but they are not as comfortable as him being the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. The reason is, is we have become a church, and by by saying that, I'm not saying our church, although this marks us to some degree, but not very much. We have become a church as a country that is the Christian churches in America who are comfortable being hearers of the word and not doers also. And the reason this is so important is because you cannot understand the teachings of Christ unless you recognize that they have some sort of goal, that there is some supposed to be some sort of outworking of the faith. That is, you are not just coming to receive forgiveness from Christ. That is here, that is wonderful, that is glorious, that's the beginning door, but then Christ transforms you by his spirit into one who is part of his mission and part of his team. The reason the Beatitudes are so hard to understand is because most of us think as we read them, that they have some sort of devotional application, and there's some sort of cipher or decoder ring that we must have in order to mine value out of them. But I tell you that Jesus is saying things that his disciples understood clearly. And the reason they understood it clearly is they were radically convinced that they had been commissioned by Jesus to be a part of his team as he is going out in public declaring the things of the Father, doing signs and wonders. And so we hear all of these statements, and yet we're mostly confused by them. What could it mean to be meek? What do you mean inherit the earth? Is that something that happens at the end of time when the Lord returns? Yes, indeed, but it is beginning to happen right now. If you look at the history of the last 2,000 years, if you've ever seen one of these, there's one floating around Facebook, you can find it. It's this little map, and it just basically shows with the color red or blue or something like that, how Christianity has spread over time to fill all of the different countries on the earth. Now, it hasn't completed its task. I don't think that the Lord will return immediately or any time within the next maybe 1,000 years. No one ever thinks about that, like building for the future, building with longevity. But think about it. If you, were, if you were knowing that the Lord actually wanted everything that you did to be sustained and to not diminish and to not decay or fall apart, you would use different building materials than you would perhaps a tent or a, you know, American home of the last decade. You know, American homes, we use lumber because lumber is plentiful, and we use drywall. And those are very good materials. You can build a structure very quickly. But in Europe, because their countries are so much older, almost every home is made out of stone. And there's something to be said for understanding what you're building with. That's what Paul told the Corinthians. You have to take care what you're adding to the foundation of Christ. And that's not just your personal walk with the Lord. That is the understanding of the church that you belong with and are partnering with. One of the things I think we're going to see today as Jesus is speaking to these people is that every single commandment has a group focus. 
And we're going to see that really clearly at the end in the final commandments. And so one of the things I want to help you understand is Jesus did not just do public miracles, as we've been looking at the last two weeks. He did not just uh, come and reveal himself through signs and wonders, like the Father speaking from heaven, the, son, the Spirit descending as a dove at the baptism of John. He also plainly taught the people so that they would be able to understand, that they would be shaped by his teaching. Jesus is not just the atoner. Jesus is not just the one who baptizes in the Spirit. Jesus is not just the one who does signs and wonders, healings and deliverances. Jesus Christ himself is also our teacher. And it is vital that we see that that is connected to his deity. The reason Christ has the authority to speak these things in this way is not just because he's a human aided by the Spirit, although he was. He is also God in the flesh. And part of his aspect of being the teacher to come is fulfilling the great promise of the Old Testament that they will be taught of God. And so we see multiple things going on here. Jesus is revealing himself as the perfect teacher. Jesus is also revealing himself who is on a mission to bring the reconciliation that the Father desires to the earth and creates a community who will carry that baton after he ascends. So with that in mind, I want to look at four aspects of this passage. I want to look at Christ as the lawgiver. We just briefly alluded to that, that he is the one who, who dispenses or teaches the law to his people. And this is very important because there is a doctrine in the church today called antinomianism. And what it means is that there is a war against the law. Anti is against and nomian. Nomia is just laws or law words. And here we see Christ asserting the validity of the law. We're going to see that next week as we continue in Matthew 5. But here he begins to demonstrate that he is the lawgiver and teacher. We're going to see some interesting things there. Then I want to look at the Beatitudes as a whole. We will only examine a few of them, verses 4, 5, and uh, verses 8. Um, and then finally, verse 10. But I want to look at them as a whole and kind of see the mindset or the spirit, if you will, behind each of the, the Beatitudes. I want to look at the nature of salt and the type of warning that Jesus gives to those who are not called to be salt, but are defined as salt. And then finally, the idea of shining our light towards men. You see, Jesus Christ does not call a man just to receive forgiveness. He calls a man to receive forgiveness and take up his cross and then begin to become part of those who he is using to redeem the world. So Jesus ascends the mountain at the beginning of this passage. In verse 1, it says, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. Now, this is a very important imagery of what Jesus is doing. If you haven't been a part of this church before, maybe if you're visiting, you uh, may not understand our emphasis on seeing Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. But the way that the scriptures were written is they are literary stories that are historically accurate. In saying that they are a narrative or a story, we don't mean they're false, but rather they were written in a historically accurate way where the writer being given grace by the Holy Spirit communicates truthfully and emphasizes certain aspects of the story in order for us to see a composite picture of what God is doing in the moment. And so Jesus ascending the mountain has deep significance as to all those who had ascended the mountain before. Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Jesus is the one who has clean hands and a pure heart. But more than just the Psalms, it also harkens back to the Pentateuch. We see Jesus doing something that is deeply clear if we remember what takes place at Sinai. Moses went up to receive the law from Yahweh on the mountain, but something greater than Moses is happening here. You see, it's, it's, a, it's a misstep, uh, scripturally speaking, to equate here Jesus with Moses, saying, oh, Moses went up the mountain and then Jesus went up the mountain. That, that is true. Jesus did go up the mountain. But I want you to see clearly something greater than Moses ascending to hear from the Lord is happening because Jesus himself ascends up the mountain. He's not just a greater Moses. He goes up first, and then it says his disciples came up to him. 
So what's the pattern? Yahweh comes down at Sinai and he calls Moses up to him. In this story, Jesus goes up to the mountain and calls his disciples to come up to him. You see, Jesus is not just taking the place of Moses in this story, being the lawgiver. He's taking the place of Yahweh. Yahweh is the one who from the mountains proclaims his law to his people. And this isn't a reversion back to seeking our righteousness by doing the law. We know this clearly. That is the, sometimes the place that people go. But it's important to see the connection. It is deeply significant because Jesus is God in the flesh. Isaiah prophesied of this. Jesus quoted it, saying that they all shall be taught by God. You see, Jesus is not just giving another opinion on human life. He's not just a, an alternative way of examining the world. He's not just like another Buddha or something. He's not, if, you, if you're into self-help guys, he's not a Tony Robbins. He's not an Oprah Winfrey. Jesus Christ in the flesh is teaching those things which are necessary to understand if one is to be a disciple, and that is the law word of God. When I use that term law word, I'm trying to help you understand that God has a way by which his people are supposed to live. These are not optional things. Happy are you, then you hear that and say, oh, well, I want to be happy, so I'll do that. These are commandments. But they're not just commandments in a prohibitionary sense. We'll look at this in detail. But they are commandments that have a deep theological significance as creating a community. Christ is the lawgiver, therefore, in a way that Moses could never be the lawgiver. Moses gives the law as one who receives it. Christ goes about teaching, and it says, They all marveled at him, for he taught not as the scribes and the Pharisees, but as one who had authority. And so Jesus, in his teaching, there's something, there's some anointing on his authority or on his message that communicates the deep need to listen. Remember, Moses prophesied that after me, God will raise up from among your brothers one who is like unto me. It is him, it is to him you must listen, and to him you must obey. And God will, whoever does not listen to that prophet, require it of him. You see, those who reject Moses still fall under the condemnation of the law of Moses. But those who reject the teachings of Christ fall under the condemnation not of a man, but of God. And in saying that, I'm not saying that Moses' law was was wrong or man-centered or from man. It was from God, but it is not able to perform the sort of righteousness that we see here. Offense at the messenger is never an appropriate response to God's word or God's messenger. Jesus said to the, the people of Israel and the Pharisees specifically, he said that John came neither eating or drinking, and you said he has a demon. And I came eating and drinking, and you said I was a drunkard and a glutton. You see, the point is that the messenger that God sends always will have something that the flesh can attack. But what the real issue is, resistance against the authority of the one who sent him. Those who reject God's authority do not escape the reality of that message. This is something so hard for people in our culture today to understand because they have been brainwashed that their opinion of the truth is what defines reality. But I tell you plainly that you exist in a reality whose arbiter is God. God is the one who defines reality. God is the one who at the end of the ages will judge each man according to his deeds. It is not enough to have faith alone that does not end in some sort of bearing of fruit, as we're going to see here in this passage. God is the one who defines reality. And so Hebrews warns us, that he says, those who reject the law of Moses, that is, who, those who commit transgressions against their, their fellow man and against God, it is they who set aside the law of Moses. That's what Hebrews says. It says that anyone who sets aside the law of Moses dies on the evidence of two or three witnesses. And then the Hebrew writer goes on to say, how much more should we expect fearful condemnation if we set aside the message of reconciliation through Christ? 
So the point being is that it doesn't matter what you think about Jesus' teachings. It only matters what you respond with. If you hear the message of the gospel and think, well, I'm just going to get around to that later, that is your decision to reject the gospel. If you think that the messages and teachings of Jesus are mere human wisdom or a better way to live your life, then you are rejecting the commandment of Christ to come and follow him and die to self, to take up your cross, to be made anew, to be washed, to be sanctified, to be filled with his spirit, to be commissioned as salt and light. That is what Jesus Christ has the authority to use in his teaching. That is why we see throughout the rest of the New Testament, the apostles, as they're going around, they will say things as God commands all people everywhere to repent. Think about the messages of gospel presentation that you've heard in churches or in evangelistic settings. You rarely hear someone give a clear warning to the people that if they do not receive the words of Christ, if they harden their hearts or deafen their ears to the message of grace, that there is no other way that they can be spared. And yet, for the most part, we have this tendency to believe that Jesus is just a moral teacher. Our culture is very acceptable of moral teachers. They're not acceptable of God in the flesh commanding them to repent from sin. And that is what Jesus Christ is doing in his teachings. He's rejecting and rebuking false faith. He's rejecting false religion. And he is commanding that true religion be put in place. Of course, that can only be done through forgiveness. Of course, that can only be done as one who's been remade by the Holy Spirit of God. But it is necessary that Prior to those things happening, you allow the word to enter. And of course, that is obviously a grace of God. But the point being that every person will give an account at the end of their life for the deeds that they did in the body. You see, this is New Testament Christianity. Most of us have a very hard time understanding that the New Testament says that we will be judged according to our deeds. Yet Paul in Romans 2 says plainly that that will take place. It's not just in Romans 2. It's also in Hebrews 10. And it's also in the book of Corinthians. There are many, many times in which the New Testament tells us we will be judged according to our deeds, our works. And yet, as especially Protestant Christians, that sounds like heresy. That sounds like a return to Catholicism or something. But brothers and sisters, that is clear biblical Christianity. You cannot claim the name of Christ and continue to live in the same sins that you had the day that Jesus first entered your life. And you also are being commissioned by Christ to be remade and then to become part of a team, part of a community that is in the business of remaking others. You see, you have an obligation, as we'll get to at the end of this message, you have an obligation to shine your light. It's not just those who are zealous for evangelism. It's not just those who are zealous to share their gospel or share their faith with other people. And it's not as if Christ is condemning those who are yet timid and weak and young. He is trying to call them to a high standard, a high calling, a noble purpose, a purpose in which we are commissioned with the same sending that Jesus had. And so Jesus is in this context teaching his disciples. He's forming a community that will respond. So Christ does not ascend the mountain to correct something that is supposedly wrong in the law of Moses. And we'll see this next week in clarity. But he says in verse 17, do not think that I came to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, that is to put it into practice, to finally enable the sons of God to be able to do it by sending the spirit to remake them from the inside out and to send the spirit to cause them to be what Ezekiel promised, that he would put in them a new heart and a new spirit within them. Jesus shows the nature and the character of the severity of God's commands. One of the things that's important to see is every time he interacts with a law or a commandment, specifically the commandments on the, the, in the set of the 10, in the context of the 613 others, each time he shows that it is actually much deeper than just the external public transgression, that God is the one who looks at the heart. And if this is what he does with anger and lust, 
Woe are we if we think that those are the only ones which he is trying to show the very root and nature and core of. He's trying to say that there is a Christian or that is according to Christ way of approaching the law of God that doesn't seek to establish one's righteousness, but that shows clearly the complete and utter hopelessness of trying to establish ours and seeking that which is coming from another. That's what Paul is saying in Romans chapters 1 through 3. Each time he mentions a commandment in this chapter, he shows the full force of the ethical implications and the external prohibition. So he says, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery. That's a public thing that you do with someone else. And in, in whether they're married or you're married or you're not married together, where one person uh, has sex with another person outside of the covenant of marriage, that is adultery. And Jesus says, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery. That's one of the Ten Commandments. He says, he goes on to press it out because there's not just the ethical prohibition of the public transgression. He's also saying that God is the one who looks into the heart. He says that if you lust after a woman, you've already committed adultery in your heart. And so what he's doing is he's helping the people to understand, even as, as somewhat terrifying the law of Moses was, And indeed, it is absolutely terrifying if you understand the holiness of God. He then goes on to say, but you must be careful that you don't read it with a hypocritical eye saying, I've never done that because I tell you the truth, everyone has broken the law of God. That's the whole point of the law of God. It's to show us of our deep and total need for another one to establish a righteousness for us and to remake us, as the rest of the New Testament says, as those who would walk according to the law of the Spirit of God. Though the law is insufficient for redeeming sinners, it does show our great need, and this is clearly within the rest of the New Testament. For this purpose, Jesus begins, therefore, teaching not just with prohibitions, but he also teaches communicating the mindset or spirit, if you will, of those who become part of his mission, his, they, who are co-missioned with him in order to bring redemption to the earth. You see, Jesus is bringing not just about uh, a better understanding of the law, he himself is the means by which those who have transgressed the law might find forgiveness, but it does not end there alone. He also wants to remake them into those who would complete the law from the heart. So each of these beatitudes that he begins to teach concern a humility that is befitting or or is proper for a disciple of Jesus Christ. We don't have time to look at each one of them in great detail, but we will look at a few of them. But I want you to understand that each of these can be understood in the context of humility. That is, the meek and those who mourn and those who are poor in spirit. Each one of them has a proper understanding of the nature and character of heart that a disciple or a community of disciples must have as they walk before God and before man. Each one of them contribute a different aspect to a composite picture. Each one of them have to do with certain either practices done in private or in public, and each of them have uh, deep application. That is, in mining the depths of one or two of them, you may get something today that later on down the road you get more. And that's perfectly fine, but it's necessary to understand that you cannot do these things, be poor in spirit, mourn, be meek, be one who hungers and thirsts for righteousness, and still have pride as a, a core aspect of your life. And in fact, each one of these commands shows the folly of human wisdom. In our culture today, those who mourn are those who are despised and rejected and are being diminished. Those who are meek get trampled on. So how is it the case that Jesus is simultaneously disarming the natural mind and also showing the graciousness and humility that accords disciples of Christ? Well, it's because this is explaining something about the way that the kingdom of God works. That is, the kingdom of God is the rule and realm of God's authority, and God is the one who dispenses graces and blessings on those who are uh, identified by these commandments. Each of these statements, therefore, focus on a God-given reward. So much of our Christian conversation has been detached from rewards, 
We think that we should pray and fast and witness out of a sense of duty or out of a sense of thankfulness for Jesus and his wonderful gift to us. That's true. We should be thankful. We should be gracious. We should do things out of love for our fellow man. But over and over again, Jesus commands us to listen to his words and hear the reward in them. Each one of these has a reward aspect to them. It's important to see that God, anyone who must come to, or anyone who wishes to come to God must believe that he is, and he is a rewarder of those who seek him. So if you're not interested in the reward, then you don't really understand the idea of God being a good father. See, our culture wants to give everyone a trophy. And I admit, I have a trophy from a year that I didn't uh, do very well on the baseball team. Those of you who know our family know my dad took over a t-ball team. There's a wonderful story behind it, which someone else can tell. And, uh, but later, we did win. I will tell you, I like the trophies that we won. I don't like the trophies that we didn't win because I knew we didn't deserve it, and I was eight. So, you know, <laughs> the, the point is our culture wars against the kingdom. The kingdom mindset is, is an affront to the natural mind. We think that those people who are downtrodden or, or on the margins of society need just handouts and more assistance and more help. And that is true. We need to do works of graciousness. But at the same time, God takes the one from the, the, the guy who hid his talent in the ground. He takes that and gives it to the one who already has 10. And that is offensive to our culture today. It's offensive because we think it's not fair. There's an inequality. Now, I am all for racial reconciliation. I'm all for amending wrongs of the past. But at the same time, there is a spirit of offense that is prevailing in the culture today. I actually have felt it so much, especially with the last political uh, things that's going, you know, the new, new administration, all of that. And I just had this sense in my spirit. I, I'm, I'm weary of discord. It seems like the majority of the culture is accepting discord and discontentedness as a way of life. That is, we have this, uh, what the, the continental philosophers of the French call a resentment. That is, everything that we ever encounter, we encounter through a lens of injustice. That is, everything that happens, has to, there has to be some outcry over this. I remember seeing a few tweets uh, months and months ago that you know, said like 800, I'm being invaded by the barbarians. 1600, I'm having to deal with you know, bubonic plague and typhoid and, and consumption. 1800, I'm a chimney sweep. 1900, I have to go to school all day. 2016, I'm offended. <laughs> if, you, if you understand the zeitgeist, the spirit of our age, there is a deep war against cultivating humility as a Christian. And that cultivation of humility comes by letting the words of Christ be entering into our hearts and our minds. At the entry of your word is light and peace and life. It's, it's not enough to simply hear the word of Christ. You must receive it and adopt it. So let's get into what he is, dis- is discussing. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Poverty of spirit is not external poverty. I know many people who are poor and are completely prideful, and they have no knowledge of their pride. At the same time, riches in the physical often are blinding. It is with great difficulty that a rich man can enter the kingdom. Jesus tells one of the churches that, at least in the spirit, if not also in the natural, that they say of themselves that they are rich and wealthy and clothed well and have need of nothing, but I tell you that you are blind, naked, and wretched. The emperor has no clothes, if you will, in the spirit. Jesus is describing a group of people who have become so satisfied with either their physical or spiritual resource that they have no sense of need. Poverty of spirit, therefore, is recognition of one's need. Those who are poor in spirit have access to the kingdom of God. Look at verse 3. It says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Almost every single other statement all has an understanding of a destiny or a journey or some future fulfillment. But what I'm trying to bring out with this beatitude, this first statement, 
is that there is a poverty of spirit that is necessary to even enter the kingdom at all. And that poverty of spirit is the, the means by which one progresses in the kingdom. Luke 2.42 and Luke 2.50 talk about Jesus Christ as one who increased in favor with God and man. And so there is an understanding, not that Christianity has levels, like the Masons, where the, you, you, you do some ceremony to get to the next level in some dark occult thing. But Christianity does have an idea of progress in the things of God, that our sanctification is to be worked out. If you were here in the first meeting, it's to be worked out with fear and trembling. Paul says that we are ones who go from glory to glory. He's not saying go from one type of glory to a different, equally valid type of glory. He's saying those who progress from glory to greater glory. And so we ought to understand that there is an entry to the kingdom of God, but at the same time, there is a poverty of spirit which must be maintained. Poverty of spirit in your life looks a certain way. It will result in prayer before God. If you are prayerless, you are not poor in spirit. You are ignorant of your spiritual need. If you do not go to the scriptures to find food, to find truth, to find, as the Psalms say, honey that is sweet on your lips, then you are not poor in spirit. You are, you are complacent in spirit. And Jesus is saying that those who are poor in spirit have access to the kingdom of God. They, they are those who have the kingdom of God. It says, for theirs is, not theirs will be, not they shall, as the other commandments or the other beatitudes. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I'm, I'm so intrigued by Peter and John as they went up to the temple after the day of Pentecost when they see the beggar who is sitting there waiting, expecting to, to get some money from them. And Peter and John are able to say, we don't have any gold, we don't have any silver, we don't have any money to give you, but what we do have, we give to you. I have never met anyone who understands the anointing of the Spirit who can say, what I do have, I give to you. I pray for people to be healed, but I've never been able to say that with any sort of truth going on in my heart and mind. But do I believe that Jesus commanded his disciples to do greater works? Yes, I do. And so I think it's our mission to be those sorts of people who desire the kingdom of God. One of the things that's so important to understand is that Jesus, in his prayer that he gave to his disciples, he said that they were to begin with an understanding of the Father and then they were to move from that to ask for his name to be holied or hallowed in, on the earth, and then to ask for his kingdom to come and for his will to be done on earth as it's done in heaven. How is God's will done in heaven? It's done perfectly. It's done without objection. It's done with love and receptivity and charity. God's will is done in heaven without any shadow. And yet on earth, we know it's not. And so he commands us to pray for that very thing, which we ought to be working for, for his kingdom to come, his will to be done. So poverty of spirit is the beginning. And this is one aspect of humility. He goes on to say, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. This is a goal or something which will happen in the future. Those who mourn will be comforted. Now, this does not necessarily mean that if you mourn because you've fallen under the weight of your own transgression, that you are going to be blessed. He says, blessed or happy are those who mourn. So if you uh, commit some sort of transgression today, you go out, steal a car, you go out, burn a house down, you murder someone, you will suffer and you will mourn. And the, the gospels are clear that Anyone who suffers must not suffer as an evildoer. Jesus is not commending the doing of sin and weakness and toleration of ongoing sin. He's talking about those who mourn because they have a recognition of the distance between the calling and their experience. That is, they, like with Paul, say, I, I forget what lies behind and I press on to the mark of the upward call. That doesn't mean just the upward, like, heaven call. Paul, Paul's talking about something he's trying to hit in this life, that there is a greater calling for him. Mourning under a sense of one's spiritual waywardness and sin, ongoing sin, that you're warring against, that sort of mourning is comforted because God will not leave you at that place. Mourning at the recognition between the distance 
of our calling and experience is the sort of thing that he has in mind here. Not mourning for just human reasons, not mourning just for those sorts of reasons of our own making, but mourning for a sense of of destiny, a sense of purpose, having a deep desire that God would finally bring about in us both the righteousness he's promised and the power and public witness to those around us. You see, what what I would encourage you to do is take some time to get to know people outside of church. And I want you to, you know, over the next few weeks and years, really, is to start taking notice of what they're trusting in. You see, outside of Christ, there's nothing in life that fulfills. And this is the sort of mourning that I think Jesus is talking about. When we see Jesus in the Gospels, he he only mourns over two or three things. He mourns at the death of Lazarus. He has compassion on the crowds, for they were sheep without a shepherd. The pastors of their day were false shepherds. And then he also mourns, of course, at Gethsemane as he's going to go to the cross. And so we see the deep place that Jesus Christ gives on understanding those who are like wayward sheep, who have no one to care for them. That's the sort of thing that produced mourning for Jesus. I think that's what he's talking about. Verse 5, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Contrary to what people tell you today, inheriting the earth is a good thing. The majority of the the, uh, prevailing notion today is that the world is getting worse, that everything's bad, you know, global warming is coming, and, uh, you you know, move your houses deep, far and away from the rivers. Brothers and sisters, God has promised that as long as the earth exists, there will be seed time and harvest, cold and summer. I do believe that we should take care of our environment. Do I believe that we should surrender all authority to the government for them to tell us what to do with the earth that God's given us? No, I don't. Because the government has only one job to do, as Romans 13 says, is to bear the sword against evildoers. How do you know what an evildoer is? You know it because God gave us a law that told us what evildoers do. So the point that I'm getting at here is inheriting the earth is not something to be ashamed of. Christianity is not just a religion that hopes to get to heaven one day. I remember a good friend of mine, a pastor friend that I like, he took the common quip. You know, the the common quip is, this earth is not my home, I'm just passing through. He took it and kind of turned it on his head. He said, heaven's not my home, I'm just passing through. Because the Christian faith, as we recited in the Nicene Creed, for the last 2,000 years isn't dying and going to heaven. Although that's glorious, Paul says to be absent from the body is to be at home with the Lord. But at the end of the day the day of the Lord, when he returns, he raises all to new life. 1 Corinthians 15, the imperishable will, sorry, the perishable takes on imperishable bodies. And we are redeemed in a new heavens and a new earth. That is breaking in through his kingdom now, but one day it will be consummated. But until then, he's given the earth as a gift for man. God made the heavens and dwells there. He gave the earth to man. And so redeeming that which he was lost in the fall is part of the mission of the sons of God. You look at Romans 8, Paul says that, that even creation itself is groaning for the revelation of the sons of God so that she might be delivered from the curse that God put over her in Genesis 3. The point is this, that inheriting the earth is something to strive for. It's not something to be ashamed of. Wisdom is vindicated by your children. This is, Jesus says this at the end of a parable. The point being that, you know, if you, if you paid attention to the news this week at all, you may have heard of these marches that took place in D.C. There was one march that celebrated vulgarity and sexual freedom and the ability to kill our children. And the other march was concerned with ending the legal murder of children made in the image of God. And I, I deeply hate where that prior march is going. I love the latter march. And the reason why I deeply hate the idea that we can just destroy the future generation is because ultimately that, that mission will die out. But the fact that it will die out is not a blessing. What I'm saying is that those who destroy the next generation cannot pass on their, their DNA, their, their motive. And, and yet, at the same time, as a people, we are deeply suffering. 
You see, one of the things that happened back when Roe was established, Roe v. Wade was established, is children began to start missing. And in fact, so many children have been murdered since Roe was established that for every three people you meet, there should have been a fourth. And it's gone on for so long now that it's not just the ones who are missing, that is the three and there should have been a fourth. At this point, with it being for 40 years, they should have had many kids. So our country is diminishing. We're diminishing because we're at war with God, and yet the meek inherit the earth. Those who are wise are vindicated by their children. But at the same time, it is a great and terrible tragedy. We should never celebrate abortion because it's the, the, the evil eating their young, so to speak. Those people are made in the image of God. Those people ought to, to have a chance to hear the gospel. Those people ought to be objects of our mercy and our compassion. And yet, the teleological end of where abortion goes, it's self-terminating, by definition. And that's not something to glory and that's something to mourn. Because what it's saying is that there's a whole generation of people who are missing. Nevertheless, the meek inherit the earth. This, is, this happens in the physical, in the natural, and it also happens one day at the end of all things, that those who are humble are blessed by God. Those who are prideful, those who walk in vanity of heart, those who puff themselves up and try to make themselves great, those people have terrible ends. What does David say? That I was despairing because I looked at the wicked and they have no pain in their death and they prosper until I entered the assembly of the Lord and remembered you see, the, the wicked, they look like they're inheriting the earth. They look like they're having more and more authority. But in fact, Jesus is saying the opposite, that those who are meek and humble, those who fulfill their oath to God, who walk in righteousness and walk humbly, they are the ones who inherit the earth. Skipping a few, look at verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Comfortability with ongoing sin and mixture of motives is a spiritual cancer for the Christian. If you know of sin that you are permitting in your life and tolerating it and not making war against it, and you've made peace with it, you have let in the devil. Christians believe that, the majority of Christians believe that we cannot have demonic influence in our life. How can the Holy Spirit of God dwell with those who uh, are being, you know, attacked by demons. I do believe that the Holy Spirit is here as our protector and our helper. But at the same time, Paul tells the Christians, do not give a place for the devil. So if he tells them to not give a place for the devil, then it follows that they can disobey his commands and give a place to the devil. The point is this, that those who are comfortable with compromise, those who are not seeking to be pure in heart, will not see God. If you are a Christian and you have believed that God will love you no matter what you do, then you do not understand the whole point of the gospel. Jesus came to provide forgiveness and to remake men by his spirit. That is why the new birth is essential. You cannot simply come to Christ on your own, seek to establish better practices, a better family, a better job situation, more discipline, a better external life, and not come to Christ and say, I need to be remade. Those who are Christians are those who throw themselves at the foot of Calvary with absolute and complete abandonment having no reservation that God sees and understands all of their sin because they know that he is a God who forgives perfectly. And that God who forgives perfectly remakes them and not only creates a new heart in them, puts his spirit in them and causes them to desire righteousness. That's why Jesus is saying, if you are loving righteousness, if you're hungry for it, you're blessed because something has happened from heaven for you. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. This was talked about in the first, the first message, but this does not just mean at the end of the age, but it does certainly mean at the end of the age. It's not just applicable to those who are going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ and either come to new life at the final day. It also applies to those who are living in his world today. Some people entertain the sin that wars against their souls. Peter says that sin wars against your soul. 
Do you know the effect of sin which wars against your soul? Do you have any understanding? Some people, they tolerate their ongoing sin, and they permit it, and they make peace with it, and they do not war against it. They do not pray against it. They do not read the scriptures to arm themselves with truth to fight the fight in the moment. They do not ask for pastoral help. They do not ask for prayer. They make peace with the enemy's inroad into their territory. And yet at the same time, it's like leaving your door open at night. Not, not unlocked, open. Inviting attack. I'm always surprised when I come home after a number of days being away from our house and nothing's wrong. I'm not saying that because we live in Dayton. What I'm saying is that I know what other people are like. This city, it was just reported, we actually have a higher murder rate than Chicago per capita. We don't have many more murders, but what I'm trying to say is that there is a spirit of murder over Dayton. And that spirit of murder is is it finds a really welcome home among the people who have not been remade in the image of God. And what I'm surprised about, we, we went to Disney a few months ago, and I got home and nothing was anywhere different than where I left it. And we were gone for like six days. It was just amazing to me that after all this time, no one had you know broken in or stolen anything. The point is that most men are not pure in heart. We sing a song at this church called Holy, 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 and it has this one line that's inverted because it's poetry. And it says, though the eyes of sinful man thy glory may not see. It's not talking about God's glory not seeing the sinful men, although God cannot look upon sin. God cannot tolerate sin to dwell with him. It means that the eyes of sinful men cannot see his glory. It's, an, it's a poetic inversion. If you've never understood that, now you can sing it with more agreement. The point is that men in their sin cannot perceive God. They cannot look upon him. They have no knowledge of him. They are completely dead and they cannot see him at all. And Jesus Christ is saying, if there is a purity of heart that is operating in your life, that that is a fruit of the humility that comes with the new birth. Those who do not have this presume upon the grace of God and are deceived by the enemy. There is a holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And that holiness does not mean complete perfection, never erring, never saying something wrong, memorizing the whole Bible. The the holiness which is required to see the Lord is a reception of the holiness imputed to you by Christ in the gospel and a building upon that faithfully by the grace of the Spirit. It is not final perfection, as some teach. But at the same time, without that holiness, just deluding yourself, thinking that you're a Christian, when there is no life at all in you, is a deep deception of the enemy, and he would love to keep you there. Verse 11 and 12, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Christ's final two commendations, two approbations here, are for those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness. That is, they are doing something with their faith. The prophets of old that he speaks of spoke against the complacency of the people of God in public and in private, both in writings and public demonstrations. You see, the prophets were killed because they were offensive to those who loved their sin. That's ultimately why Jesus was killed. The reason the world hates me is because I testify to it that its deeds are evil. And Jesus is not saying, blessed are you if you, you know, are forced to bake a cake for a wedding. Brothers and sisters, I'm totally against the state having that authority. But I think there's something more in mind that Jesus is saying here. He's saying, blessed are you when you're persecuted because of your witness because you are just like the prophets of old. It's not saying that blessed are you when they take away prayer in schools or when you hear a nasty comment on Facebook from an atheist. That's not the sort of persecution that I'm talking about. Those sorts of persecutions are troubling. I don't enjoy being insulted by people. But at the same time, if you're just being insulted and you're not actually part of the battle, I don't think that's what Jesus has in mind here. He says, rejoice and be glad, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. That is, those prophets who came and now you've taken up their same mantle. 
in witnessing to righteousness, in speaking against the evils of the day. That is exactly what Christ is talking about. I want to look really briefly at salt and light, and then we'll, we'll close. Jesus does not call his disciples to be the salt of the earth. He says that they are the salt of the earth. The disciples of Jesus Christ are those who are called salt, not those who should become salt. Does that make sense? He's not saying that those who are disciples should one day attain to saltiness. In fact, he says the complete opposite. He says, verse 13, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall, how shall its saltiness be restored? I love making pizza. One of the things I do when I make pizza, I make it on a stone in my oven. You got to get the oven really hot. You got to leave the stone in there for like an hour so it absorbs all the heat it can. So as soon as that dough hits, it starts to cook. But what I have to do before I put that dough on the pizza stone is I have to coat it on the bottom with something. Now at first, I did. I thought, oh, I want to make pizza like Cassano's. If you're a Daytonian, you know what Cassano's is. They have so much salt on their pizza. It's great. But I made the mistake of using fine grain salt without any mixture or filler, and I put it on the bottom of the pizza. It was uneatable. It was so salty, I didn't finish it. That's how bad, you know, how good pizza is and how salty that was. The reason why is because it was pure. I put pure salt the next time I mix that salt down with cornstarch, cornmeal. Sorry, not cornstarch, cornmeal. And then I spread it around the pizza because it was able to give it, it was able to move on the stone, but it wasn't too salty to eat. The way I made it less salty is I invited mixture and I poured cornmeal into it and stirred it around. Salt doesn't have an expiration date. If you go and buy it, some people put an expiration date, but it doesn't get salty, lose its saltiness by just sitting on the shelf. It's a stable mineral. It doesn't have a shelf life, if you will. Now it can get moldy or it can get gross, but by and large, if you keep it in the pantry, you don't have to change it. It's not like milk. It's not like fruit. If you leave fruit there, it will die and you'll get sick in the process. The point is that salt stays salt unless it loses its mixture. The nature of the salt stays the same, and yet it comes under the influence of things that are compromised. So, the only way for salt to lose its saltiness is to lose its mixture. And the nature of salt is, by default, a preservative and an a, uh, amplifier of flavor. That is what salt's job is to do, culinarily speaking. It's to stop decay. It's to stop spoiling. In fact, when, if you've ever eaten jerky, you know it's dried and it's salted because it stops the spoiling process. And yet, if we are supposed to be salt and light, then this description is actually a grand indictment against the church in our day because the majority of the culture is spoiling around us. You see, Jesus does not say that we are to be salt. He says we are salt. But salt in the shaker doesn't do its job. The church in our country is, is essentially being trampled. He says that if it loses its mixture, it's only good to be thrown out and trampled. The church is not in the greatest place it's been in our country. And if anything, it's in the worst place it's been in our country. And yet at the same time, I don't think we make the leap to doom and gloom and everything's getting worse. There may be a judgment against America coming, but there is not judgment coming against the kingdom of God. And so he calls us to be the salt in public, which we are already. At the same time, knowing that there is a larger cultural compromise in the body of Christ, some of us take solace in that and become complacent and say, well, it's mostly other people's fault. You know, if all the other churches would get their act together, right? Have you ever felt that? You, you probably have, even if you don't think you have. It's not the problem of other people. The problem is me. You know that whole idea, be the change you wish to envision in the world? I, I kind of hate that, but I kind of love it. Because at the same time, you know, the rest of the culture shouldn't just re rebel against God. But at the same time, I can only be faithful for myself, my family, my church. And in fact, I can't be faithful for you. No amount of pastoral oversight can overcome your deep rebellion of the things of God. 
At the same time, we have to be responsible for what we have authority over ourselves, the people we have influence, the people we have relationships with. We're to be the salt that we are. And so also he says, with light of the world, Christ tells them that they are the light of the world. He comes into the world and it says in John 1 that he was the light of the world. He then says to them, you are the light of the world. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people put light, put, take a light and put it in, under a basket, but on a stand, a light stand or a lamp stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others. Without the disciples of Christ shining their light in every situation, the world remains in darkness. The reason our culture is in such a deep darkness is the majority of the church has bought into this kind of hold fast to what remains and never advance or take new territory. Wars cannot be won in defense. Invasions cannot be stopped merely holding territory. At some point, you have to go and destroy the source of the attack. And the church, for the most part, is not even playing good defense. Shifting metaphors from war to sports. This is where the end of my sports metaphors uh, exist. You have to have a good offense if you're going to win a game. Right? You can't win it with defense alone, as much as I love Ohio State. (laughs) That's all I know that in the past they didn't have good offense. I don't know anything about them today. The point is that we are to be light, and light shines, and without that shining, the world is in darkness. And yet Jesus is primarily talking to a group of people, not individuals. Local churches in the scriptures are the lampstands that Christ attends to. And the lampstands that Christ visits in Revelation, if you would hold the metaphor for a second, he fills them with oil, the oil of the Spirit, in order for those lamps to be trimmed. The, the young virgins, the wise and the foolish ones who were waiting for the bridegroom to come, some of them filled their lamps and others waited till he was at the door and they were not able to buy in that hour. The bridegroom came and closed the feast and they were shut out. The point is that Jesus Christ is concerned with multiple people coming together to be the lampstands of the New Testament. Those people, those churches, who reject their God-given calling to shine as light, have their lights removed. We see that in the warning. Right after Jesus says that he walks among the lampstands and walks among the churches, he then says to one of the churches, I believe Laodicea, he says to them that if you do not be zealous and repent, I will remove your lampstand. Ephesus. And in fact, thank you for that. In fact, that happens in history. The city of Ephesus was a port city. It dried up. It silted over a few hundred years later. And basically that church did did get uh, removed. So Christ gives us the key in these passages to seeing gospel advancement, that through shining light, men would acknowledge their father. Brothers and sisters, I would call you to re-examine your understanding of what it means to be a disciple of Christ. Is there a time to get healthy, to get whole, to repent of sin, to get deliverance, to get filled with the Spirit? Absolutely. Those things are vital tools and armor without which you will not last. But at the same time, if you spend all of your life target practice, sharpening your knife, sharpening your sword, learning how to hold your shield, you will never enter the battle. At some point, you have to understand that Christ is commissioning me to be fruitful to be fruitful, and to let that fruit remain. And so I would just call you, I feel like our church, I've said this a few times in the last few weeks, I feel like our church is being invited into a season of visitation from the Holy Spirit. And I would call on you to prepare yourself to ask for God to give you dreams of how you could be effective whether or not it would be a prayer ministry or a healing ministry or learning how to do evangelism, that you would see yourself as being one of these who go out and is salt and light as they're called to be. You see, many of us have, even in this church, though we preached against it, we have become comfortable with letting pastors and lay leaders do the work of the ministry. But the reason in the New Testament that God gave ministers is for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry that it is every person in a community that is supposed to be involved in this mission. Because we are being invited by Christ to take part of the very same mission of reconciliation of the earth that he came with. 
In John 1, he said, I am the light of the world. Then in Matthew 5 here, he says to us, you are the light of the world. At the end of John's gospel, Jesus tells the disciples, he says, as the Father has sent me, I send you. And yet for many of us, there's this very big disconnect there. We don't really see ourselves as being part of that sending, part of that commission. And so what I'm calling on you to do today is to recognize the deep, wonderful, gracious, pleasing, honorable, high calling of being invited into the very work of God in the earth and to see yourself as one who could actually begin to bear fruit. Let's close. Father, we thank you for your word. Jesus, we thank you that you came and you not only died a death, but you also taught. You also revealed the Father's nature through your miracles, through your signs, through your wonders. We thank you, Jesus, that you poured your spirit out on your church, that at the day of Pentecost, you gave to these fearful, trembling disciples who just weeks or days earlier had denied you at the very hour of your trial, that you enabled them to have boldness, that you caused Peter to go from denying you to publicly preaching in the same city in which you were killed. Jesus, we thank you for the mighty calling and the teaching that you gave to us. We pray, Lord, that you would cultivate it in us hunger. We know, God, that we cannot become zealous without your spirit first working that in us and helping us to see and to orient ourselves toward your mission. And at the same time, Lord, we ask that you would give us deep, deep hunger for your word, for your spirit, that we would not just be those who consume, but also uh, use them as resource to, to do ministry, to share our light, to be that sort of salt that you have said we are. We pray, Lord, that you would give us a season of visitation, that we would be renewed in our zeal, in our holiness, that you would cause us to be those sort of people that you love and delight to dwell among. We thank you for your wonderful grace towards us, which is undeserved and amazing and empowering. We pray, Lord, that we would make a good use of that grace. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.